All right, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been looking at 2 Peter chapter 1 for the last 16 weeks now. And as we conclude this series today, I want to remind you guys why this was initially started. And I'll bring it back towards the end, so I won't belabor the point too, too much. But it was initially started as a study that I wanted to do personally on vision overall. Uh, for me personally, there are times where I feel like I can struggle with knowing where to go next. In everything. And part of that is because of the way that my brain is where I could tend to overthink and overanalyze and just overcomplicate things. And in doing so, it really causes the focus to be on me figuring out the issue and not trusting and relying upon God. And not trusting Him by faith. That's the thing that, it, it's a hard line to walk sometimes in our walk with Christ. You know, we, faith is not the absence of common sense, and our faith does have substance. You know, I was just talking with Carson the other night about this after church on Wednesday, about the idea that when we're witnessing to people, there are evidences in, in science, in history, in archaeology, and even just, you know, the manuscripts of the Bible. There are concrete evidences. There is concrete evidence. Our whole grammar conversation is really throwing me off now. I'm, like, evaluating everything I say. There's concrete evidence in the Bible and in history that proves this book is no ordinary book. That it was not written by men, and it did not come from men. That is entirely of God. Things that are supernatural that no human can explain. And so it's nice to have that when you're witnessing, but really at the end of the day, the person you're witnessing to, they need to make a choice by faith. They need to choose, all right, you know what? Even though all this stuff is there, really at the end of the day, I just need to come down to, do I believe what it says or not? And there are certain things that God kind of leaves out for us to be like, look, you don't know the end of the story. You don't know what's going to be the next step. You don't know what's going to happen as a result of the decision you're about to make. You just need to step out and trust Him that He's going to catch you if you fall with this decision you make. And it's like that sometimes in our walk when we have a decision or, or a, an avenue that we need to travel down. I tend to like to know, okay, if I go down this path, here's what's going to happen. And if I go down this path and it's going to be a dead end, I like to know that I have an alley that I can escape over here. I like to know those things up front and concretely. And so in doing so, I will overanalyze and overthink and just completely complicate the things when there are sometimes I'm like, look, God, I just got to trust you and I just got to go. And I got to trust that, you know what, if this was the wrong decision to make, you're going to make the way plain for me. You're going to make the vision clear for me where I need to go next. And that's really what this entire study was born out of. And again, the headline verse that's on the top of every single one of your study sheets for day, weeks after weeks after weeks, it really comes down to verse 9. He that lacketh these things, the things we've looked at the last 16 weeks, if you do not add them to your faith, if you are not diligent, as we've looked at, earnest, intense, sincere, to add these things to your faith, you're what? You're blind. And you're not going to see far off. So for me, I had to learn that if I want to know where to go next, if I want to know what, what the next step is, if I need to know when to stop and pivot or when to move forward with something, I need to make sure I'm adding these things to my faith. And it's the same thing with you guys. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to see it far off. So again, as review... We're to do what? Add to your faith virtue, and that is the strength to do what is? 
I didn't change the blanks from last week. Strength to do what is right out of a love for God. To that you add knowledge. Knowledge is growing that love to know Christ in a deeper, more personal depth. And to knowledge you add temperance. Temperance is controlling and possessing your body or vessel against internal attacks on your walk. And once you master that, you're able to add patience, which is controlling and possessing your soul in reaction to external attacks on your walk. Remember, we talked about how those two are linked together. That's why the one comes after the other. And why do these trials of your faith that, that bring forth patience come? Because you're growing and you're maturing in your walk. You're adding things to your faith and the enemy is not going to be happy about that. But when you go through that trial of patience, you're becoming more refined. You're going through the fires like those three boys did, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're becoming more like God, which is why godliness is being conformed further into the image and likeness of His dear Son after the trials or post-trials. And now that you're more like God, you start to exemplify character traits of Him even more so, and it starts with your immediate ministry, brotherly kindness, which is seeing our brothers in Christ through His eyes to minister accordingly. And as we started looking at last week, and we're going to finish today, charity is seeing lost mankind through His what? To love them enough to tell the truth. Again and again, he says, add to your faith. Well, you add all of these character traits up. You know what it equals? As we saw last week, it equals vision. It equals success because you're never going to fall. And it equals fruitfulness. The Bible says, we saw it last week in 2 Peter 1, verses 8 through 11, that you will neither be barren nor unfruitful. And as a result of that, you will bring glory to God. Hey, do you want to please God? Or are you just happy that you're saved and now you can do whatever you want knowing that there's no penalty and consequence for your sin eternally? No. Maybe one or two are in here. But I like to believe that by and large, at least in the deepest, darkest recesses of all of your hearts, you want to do what is pleasing and right unto God in your walk. If that's the case, we need to go with what the Bible says is pleasing and glorifying unto God. And as we saw before, John 15, 8, what is that? Herein is my Father glorified that ye, what? Bear much fruit. Having a heart and a mindset of, I am ready for either the altar or the plow. The plow to give my life to Christ through service and the altar to lay my life down and sacrifice for Him. And understand, the two are directly linked. I understand from our study in Revelation, you might be thinking quite literally as far as the altar. And maybe that's the case. If you end up going as a missionary to a third world country, and that befalls you. But honestly, the kind of death we're talking about, it's the dying of self daily. It's that dying of self where it's no longer about me. This is not my life. It's not about where I want to go to college. 
Because, well, there's nothing wrong with this. So why wouldn't God bless me to go here? It's no longer about who I want to date. Well, they're a believer. So what could go wrong with this? It's no longer about what I want to do as a career. Well, i got to provide for a family, so what harm could possibly come from going this way? And understand, all three of those things might be true. But did you lay it down at the altar and say, God, here's what I want, but what do you want? And if you, what you want is different from what I want, okay, it's at the altar, it's dead. I'm not going to try to resurrect it. I'm going to go with you and I'm going to trust you. Even though I really want that career and that college and that girlfriend, boyfriend. <sighs> yeah, it's painful, but death's painful. You understand that these kinds of choices and these kinds of sacrifices, this is what we should be doing on a daily basis. I want to do that sin, but I'm not going to. And again, big choices, little choices, day-to-day choices. So the recap from part one, what we looked at, we saw that you can't have charity without candor. And again, candor, it's that, in summary, it's loving people enough to tell them the truth. That's what we saw. Being bold, being blunt, being candid, where you get the word candor from. Being bold enough to tell them the truth because you love them. There's no greater form of love than to tell somebody the truth. Your enemy will tell you whatever you want to hear. A true friend will tell you the truth, even if it hurts. You know a beautiful proverb that exemplifies this? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. How's the rest of that verse go? The kisses of the enemy are deceitful. If your friend tells you anything and everything that you want to hear, be very careful. Be very careful, especially around here. A true friend will tell you the truth, especially if it hurts. Just hopefully they're doing it in a biblical way. And they're considering your side of a story if it's that particular issue and not just what they heard. The letter B in your outline. Charity requires a fear and compassion that motivates us to action. Why? Because people are going into the fire. Every single second, somebody's taking their last breath on this earth. I think that's faster than a second. But maybe, actually in today's day and age, maybe it's sped up to where it's two people every second. Taking their last breath, either heaven or hell, as we speak. Where are they going? People you're surrounded with, where are they going? You know where you're going. Who's coming with you when you take your last breath? Who's coming with you at the rapture of the church? It requires a fear for what their end is going to be and a compassion that motivates us to do something about it to make sure they're with us. That's where we left off last week. Now, for application, to tie this all up, wrap it up in a nice bow, we need to anoint thine eyes, anoint our eyes, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Wow, what a weird verse to anoint our eyes with. 
It's almost like we need the context of what's going on here. And we'll get to that. But you know what's interesting? This whole glass darkly, this dark glass that he's, he's talking about. Hey, let me ask you guys a question. Does the Word of God touch and impact your life? When you read the Bible, do you have times or days or minutes or moments where God is speaking to your heart and you're touched by that? Do you have times where you're reading the Bible and your life is completely changed, whether it's in a message or your personal devotions? where God completely rocks your world and changes your life? In other words, when you read your Bible, are you interacting with God? Or are you just reading another book? If you're reading the Bible and your life is impacted by it, that's the glass darkly. As we're going to see here in a little bit, the Bible, man, there's a lot here. This is the mind of God according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's the mind of God. It is the Word of God. It's Jesus Christ in print form. Literally. That's what it says of itself. That's what it testifies of itself. And you all have a testimony of being changed and impacted. What other book can do that for you to this level? Do you understand and realize that even though this is the mind of God, this isn't the full story? It's everything that you and I need for life and godliness, as we saw in the introduction to this class. But this doesn't even scratch the surface of the depth of the knowledge of God in everything He has in store for us in eternity future. Right now we see into the heavenlies. We see into the spiritual world. We see into this relationship, this walk by faith through a glass darkly, through a dark glass. But then, when we're in front of Him... Our faith shall be made sight, as 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says. And we'll know all things. We will know everything. We'll be just like Him. We're going to literally have His mind in our mind. We'll be able to know every... Hey, you struggle with verse memorization? One day, you're going to have the entire Bible by heart. You'll be able to rattle off verses just like that. Any questions, any doctrinal disparities or questions throughout time that we have to have uh, theology people develop podcasts for where they talk and debate? Well, I think the tribulation is actually three and a half years. And they spew out all of this knowledge and they don't even really give a solid concrete answer as to which stance they take. We have all of these questions about doctrine. One day all of those questions are going to go away. And we're going to know exactly what it is. But for now... We have the dark glass. We see through a glass darkly. How on earth does this apply to what we're talking about altogether? You realize how precious it is right now that you guys have the most immense and the closest relationship with anyone, even more so than your parents or your best friend in your relationship with God, and yet you've never once seen Him with your eyes? You've never once heard Him audibly with your ears? You never once reached out and physically touched Him or gave Him a hug or had Him hold you? Do you realize how special that is? That a God you cannot see, hear, or feel and yet He is the closest person you have a relationship with 
even more so than your parents and your friends, your youth leaders, your discipler. That is very, very special. You ever have one of those moments where you're just like, oh, another day to do my devotions, and you open up the Bible and you read, and all of a sudden you're like, wow. I was not expecting that this morning. I was not expecting God to completely turn my world upside down with this passage. It was almost as though He put this chapter in the Bible specifically for me for this exact moment in time with what I'm going through right now. And it's almost as though He did it knowing this through 2,000 years ago when it was written. This couldn't be for everybody else. No, this chapter is just for me. And I am completely undone, as Isaiah put it when he had an encounter with God like that. I am undone. And my life is forever changed because of this encounter with a God that I do not see, feel, touch, or hear. In the physical sense. Do you realize how unique and special that is? We have interactions with each other all the time where we can either affect each other for the good or the bad. We see, feel, touch, hear, all of that. But one day, you understand that this kind of special, unique bond you have with Christ, it's going to go away? And that it's not going to be by faith anymore? And those moments where the unseen, inaudible, no physical touch God who speaks to you as though He is here, as though He is audibly speaking, one day it's going to go away and your faith's going to be sight. And you'll be able to see Him. Just like we see each other and interact in fellowship. A longabout way of saying, there's so little time left for us to enjoy Him through this form, through interacting with Him through a book, and consequently going out and being effective to the lost world. There's so little time left for our relationship by faith. There's so little time left to have charity amongst all of the lost world. So when you look through the glass darkly of this book, let Him speak to you and get a hold of you and do something with it. That's what this chapter is all about. And it's a chapter that is so misconstrued in so many places. Do you realize 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter that is most used in weddings? Because it's known as the great what chapter? The great love chapter of the scriptures. Because it all just mentions love and love and love. Actually, the word's charity, and that's why we're going to look at it today. But you know what's unique about this chapter? It is a chapter not about, oh, please, Pastor of Corinth, use this in all of your wedding ceremonies. No. It is a chapter of rebuke to a church that knew not what the meaning of the word charity was. And he's rebuking them. Because you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, and they are a jacked up group of people. Completely messed up in their walk. And they needed reminded of what true charity is. Look with me in verse 1. And maybe by the end of this, the glass darkly will make sense. This is Paul speaking as a rebuke to these men and women in this church. 
Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You might be the best orator possible. You might be the best person at evangelizing, at witnessing, knowing exactly what to say, knowing exactly what they're going to say in response to what you said, and then go back and then, boom, give them the, the hook to the ribs to knock them out. You might know how to be up here and to teach to VBS and to preach to other people. You might have a gifted tongue of speaking. But if it's done without charity... If it's just done as a check mark in your checkbox of Christian duties and services, he says you're a sounding brass, a tinkling cymbal. In other words, it's just a whole lot of noise if it's not done with charity. See, what we're going to see here in the first three verses on your outline, letter A, we can have it all. You can have all six of the character traits of 2 Peter 1 down, but if we fail here, we are nothing. We are nothing. Nothing in point one, as we just saw, but a lot of talk and noise. You know, as a companion piece of 1 Corinthians 13, especially these first three verses, I have all these passages in not first Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1, but Second Peter chapter 2. In other words, the passage we've been studying for the last 16 weeks, Peter follows up these character traits with chapter 2 talking about false preachers and teachers, or people who do things not adding these character traits to their faith. And as a stark contrast to people who preach the gospel, who have, who have charity, Someone who doesn't speak charity, someone who's just a lot of talking, a lot of noise. In 2 Peter 2.18, he says, For when they, these false prophets and teachers, when they speak great swelling words of vanity, kisses of the enemy are deceitful, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Seniors, mark it down. If you're going away to college, even if you're just commuting, you're going to have a lot of these kinds of people speaking great swelling words to appeal to your flesh, to appeal to your vanity through the lusts of the flesh, to buy into things that are not true, to buy into ways of life that will destroy you and will put you down a path of pain for a long, good while to come. and It'll take a long while to get back from. You better watch out for these teachers. You better watch out for people that you're going to meet in colleges that say and profess the name of Christ, and maybe they genuinely are saved, but they come from churches that have pastors that are like this. You want to watch out for them. They might be genuinely saved. And I'm going to talk about this whenever it is, probably a long time down the road we do biblical dating and relationships. But understand, yeah, the Bible does say how can you be unequally yoked with an unbeliever? But you know what Amos says, the book of Amos? Can two walk together except they be agreed? If you don't agree in things doctrinally, you're not going to see eye to eye on things when it comes to a relationship and your future. Keep that in mind. You got to watch out for these people. They're just sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. Number two, look at verse two. 
And Paul says, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Hey, you might be like those guys. You could probably start your own podcast and debate all of the deep doctrinal theological questions of the Bible just to provide no answers. But hey, at least we're thinking about it. You might know all of the seven dispensations, eight if you count eternity past, and the ninth that's to come in eternity future. You might know when they begin and the failure of that dispensator or that, that steward who is in charge of that dispensation and all of the other mysteries of the Bible. Like Paul was saying, Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, you might know the Bible through and through and have all of these verses memorized and all of your camp verses memorized next week. But... Though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, and have not what? Have not what? I am nothing. You understand what he's talking about here, especially as it relates to what we're studying in Second Peter 1, is that failure cannot be an option for us. It's not about how you start. It's about how you end. It's about how you finish. You can have all six of everything we've looked at for the first 14 weeks added to your faith. But if you fail here, Paul says, I am nothing. I mean, man, from my Western uh, logical thinking brain, six out of seven's not bad. Not when it comes to him. Imagine if Jesus only gave six sevenths of himself on the cross for you. Imagine if he only forgave six sevenths of your sins. Goodness, can you imagine figuring that out? What one seventh is still left? What do I have to do for that? No. Gave all of himself. He became that burnt offering with his sacrifice, where all of him, and you study the Levitical law, when that animal was sacrificed on the altar, it was completely consumed. All of it burnt up. Jesus isn't interested in just six out of seven, he wants all of us. And we ought to strive for all seven of these character traits. Number two on your outline. If we fail here, we are nothing. Nothing but a lot of head knowledge. Again, he goes back in 2 Peter chapter 2. He talks about, For if after they, these false teachers, these false Christians, maybe they only stopped at six, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein into the world system, their old life, their, their sin, and overcome. Uh, listen, don't miss this last part. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known. Oh, don't miss this verse. Talking about people who get saved and then become entangled again into their lost state or get tangled in with the things they were doing back when they were lost, it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. 
You know what this verse is saying? Pretty much what we just read in 1 Corinthians 13 too. Knowledge is nothing. You can have every bit of knowledge about this book, all the doctrines that pertain to it, just like they did in 2 Peter 2. But if it's not done out of charity, you are nothing. It is nothing. That's what he's saying here. 1 Corinthians 8.1, anybody know what that verse says? You know what knowledge does? Puffeth up. We know that first half, but what's the second half say? Charity edifieth. To put that verse in other words, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity, that's what builds people up. Number three, we can have it all. We can have all six of these, but if we fail at charity, we are nothing, nothing, verse, or point three, but a lot of religious deeds devoid of true worship and value. Look at verse three. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, I sign up for VBS every single year. I'm going on a missions trip this year. I'm always active at camp. I always sign up for every activity we have, for the service projects, for the booth at the Jackson Festival. But if I do it and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Again, Christ isn't interested in six out of the seven. Nothing. And lastly, again, 2 Peter chapter 2, the, the flip side of the coin. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. But here's their character trait. Here's what they did. Who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. It means that they have to know about the heresy. They have to have the knowledge of it, and they're actively teaching it. They're involved. Even denying the Lord that, brought, that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. They're going to use you. Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. I show you this in 2 Peter 2 to contrast it with 1 Corinthians 13 because I want to show you that line between doing what's right out of a pure heart and being like these guys, it's very, very thin. The thin line, it's charity. You can do all of these good things, but if you don't have charity... You're flirting awfully dangerously close to all the false teachers that are talked about in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 is one of the most frightening chapters in all the Bible for me. You should read the whole of it sometime later today. Tell your dad to read it too. It'll be a good Happy Father's Day present for him. Just kidding. Letter B. You know what we see in verses 4 to 7 as we're going to look at here in a little bit? Sin will stop our progress dead in its tracks. Follow along with me in verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. It's not thinking about itself. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not 
Now listen, behave itself unseemly, because sin will stop our progress dead in its tracks. It seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, it thinketh no evil. It rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. It beareth all things, it believeth all things, it hopeth all things, it endureth all things. Oh, it's a little side note. That reminds me. Someone read for me verse 2 again. Just anyone. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Okay. And uh, someone read for me verse 3 again. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, and profit. Man, giving all your goods to the poor, giving your body to be burned. Wow, that's doing something right out of a love for God. Kind of virtuous of him. Hmm. We saw in verses 4 to 7, sin will stop our progress dead in its tracks. Again, Matthew 24, 12. That's a verse everyone in here should know. That if iniquity abounds, what did Christ say about the love of God? Or the love of many? It starts to wax cold. Starts to wax cold. Revelation 2.4, for those of you guys who remember from church history, I was talking about the Ephesus church period. Remember what Christ rebuked Ephesus for? They left their first love. They left that selfless love for their Lord Jesus Christ, and as a result, they didn't love others. They didn't have brotherly kindness, and they didn't have charity to the rest of the world. So what do we do when we get ourselves in that kind of a rut. Number one, we must repent and do the first works. That was Christ's remedy to the Ephesus church. Repent and do the first works. Hey, somebody tell me, what were some of the things that you guys did after you got saved? After you got saved, what's your testimony? How did you change? What were some of the things you started doing? Huh? Write the Bible. Oh, read the Bible. Read the Bible. Because you want to hear from God. What else? That's what I did. I got picked up. person who always took me to church at the base of this mountain in West Virginia. I looked at that mom and her family that took me and I told her, I got saved. Here's what happened. I went back home to people who I knew did not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and I told them what happened to me at camp. I didn't know the Ten Commandments. I didn't know the ABCs. I just told them what happened to me. I wanted to tell people what happened because I didn't want them to die and go to hell. Charity, the first works. 2 John 6, what a great verse. And this is love, that we walk after His commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, the first works, ye should walk in it. Somebody read verse 4 again for me. Anyone? Make it quick. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity. Suff oh, pause right there. Oops. Suffereth long. You know what a word for that is? Long suffering? Being temperate. You're taking it. Go ahead and continue reading verse 4 and 5, Heather. 
security vaunted not itself, it is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Oh. Thinketh not her own. Doesn't envy what somebody else in here has, but is always thinking about others, how they might help them out. Verses 5 and 6. Somebody read that real quick. Or just 6. We already read verse 5. Oh, actually, don't read that because it actually, we already got it up here. But look at verse 7 again. I'll read this. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. You know what another word for endure is? We looked at it before. Holy smokes, would you look at that. I'm starting to see a pattern forming here. Number two, if we don't repent and do the first works, you might be going through an odor of affliction. Remember what that stood for? the Thyatira church period who went through the dark ages, one of the bloodiest times in all of church history, a trial of patience to get their eyes off ourselves, get our eyes off ourselves, and upon the work that needs done. Remember Christ's commission to them? I know thy works and charity. This is the church in Thyatira. And even though they were suffering... They got their eyes off themselves and onto the service and faith and patience and the works that needed to be done. And Christ commanded them that their works grew. It got better and better. The last more than the first. Let us see as we bring this to a close. Why? Because charity matures us and perfects our vision. Look with me in verse 8. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Speaking in tongues was going to end. Paul was warning here as a little side doctrinal note. We'll see when here in a second. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Same thing with the tongues. But when that which is perfect is come... The law of the Lord in Psalm 19 is perfect, converting the soul. Then that which is in part shall be done away. You know why tongues, healings, and prophecies were needed? Well, not necessarily prophecies, but tongues and healing were needed in the, act, in the book of Acts? Because the Bible wasn't completed yet. That which was perfect had not come. There you go. There's a simple doctrinal explanation. When I was a child, look at verse 11. I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but... In the process of growing up and maturing and adding to your faith, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because the entire goal of this Christian life, as we saw in Romans chapter 8, it was God's plan since eternity past, is to make us more like His dear Son and conform us thereto, otherwise known as godliness. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It matures us and perfects our vision. That's why it's at the end of the list in 2 Peter chapter 1. Point one. We don't have time to look at this, but you can see Romans 13, 8 through 10 later. 
Charity is the fulfillment of the law. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. And what's charity again? Loving your friends enough to tell them the truth of the gospel, even if it hurts. And of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. It's not fake. It's not insincere. Next point, number two. It's the key to our growth process. Colossians 3.14 says, Above all these things, put on charity. Above all these things. Above all these things, put on charity. Otherwise, back to Paul's beginning of this letter, we're nothing. Six out of seven, fail. Six out of seven, success in our eyes, fail in God's eyes. Because we're nothing. If we add all of these things to our faith, but it doesn't affect the lost world around us, what good was it all? What good was it all? It's the bond of perfectness or maturity. Number three, as we are changed even more, even more into the image of Christ, because we're looking through that glass darkly, we all with open face beholding as in a glass, the Word of God as we talked about, of the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Every time you open up this book, you should be changed. If not, go about things differently. We talked about that before with the knowledge aspect. Then Philippians 3.12. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. Again, you're maturing here. But I follow after. Are you pursuing these things? Are you diligently adding them? If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. I love this. I'm doing it with Ryder now, and I remember doing it with Wyatt. But when Wyatt was first learning how to walk, we have a steep hill in our backyard. Many of you have seen it. And he would try to walk up the hill. But you know what he would do? He would reach out, and I would grab his hand. Now, I would let him walk up. I wasn't going to just pull him up and do all the work for him. No. I wanted him to learn how to walk up the hill. But I would have just a firm enough grip on his hand, non-verbally communicating to him that, hey, you're going to be the one walking, but I have you just in case you slip. Man, what a beautiful picture of what Christ does with us. If we but extend our hand, he'll reach back and he'll hold us. He's not going to do the work for you. He wants you to go up that hill. But just know that if you at least reach out your hand and extend it to Him, He's going to latch on and He's going to catch you when you fall. Making us more like Him. And lastly, He makes us so that we're never barren nor unfruitful. We saw that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. And Galatians 5 is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. But... He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. That's the rest of that verse. If you lack these things, you know what you're going to be like? You're going to be like those who deny the Lord that bought them. You're going to forget that you were once purged of your old sins. That's why you're not going to have the vision to see where it is you're supposed to be going next in life. Because you will have forgotten all of these things that Jesus Christ Himself demonstrated in Himself towards you and how much He wanted to make you like Him. Ready for either.
We ought to be ready for either for the sake of the lost. One last illustration. I wanted to talk about this real, real quick, and I forgot to do so when I did this for the adults. Um, talking again about the, the introduction, that the reason for this entire class that, that I studied this out is that I wanted to personally know more about vision, to know more about where I should go, etc., and so forth. I already shared that in the intro. But conversely, hopefully you guys are thinking, what does God want next for me? Where should I go next? What does He want me to do? When does He want me to stop and pivot? And once you know that, as I said before 16 weeks ago, what does that look like for us as a youth ministry? You've heard it said that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. You may have even heard it said here in this church that our church is only as strong as our weakest member. Same proverb. Spartan culture. You guys know the Spartans, Greek. They, the story of the 300 actually was true story. 300 men held off the forces of the Medo-Persian Empire in the, gattle, in the Battle of the Hot Gates. Spartans were some of the most brutal and most disciplined soldiers in all of history. They had a proverb in their society, in their culture. You know what it was? The reed beside the staff. This is a reed. This is what we discipline Ryder with. This is a staff. This is what we discipline Wyatt with. <laughs> reed beside the staff. You know what the meaning of that proverb meant for them? chain isn't as strong as its weakest link. The chain is made stronger because of the weak link. In other words, a public speaker, an orator who maybe has a stutter or a stammer, he's made stronger when he thinks how he can use his wits to overcome his impediment. A wrestler, big in Greek culture, who maybe has a hamstring injury, he thinks about what other parts of his body he can use to overcome and overcompensate and dominate his enemy. How did the Spartans apply this in battle? The seasoned, strong, discipled vets, they would grab a green, unseasoned, newly minted soldier fresh out of camp and they line them up next to each other in battle. The seasoned vets, the discipled, it caused them to look out for the one next to them, and in doing so, they fought harder. They fought wiser. Because they realized, oh, stink, I, would, I think I'd much be better off if I had another one like me next to me so I could lock shields with. But now that I got this guy, I'm going to have to work extra harder. Because I'm not just going to look out for me. I'm going to look out for him to make sure he gets home to his family. And I'm going to share some of my knowledge and my wisdom and my experience to make him like me. Because I'm going to look out for him so that he gets home to his family. And I want him to be just as capable and able to do the same to get me home to my family. That's brotherly kindness. That's charity. Solid is not as strong as its weakest member. 
it can be that if that's how we take it. Solid should be all the more stronger because of the weaker members in here. Maybe those who haven't made the decision yet to get saved. Maybe those who haven't made the decision yet to get discipled. Maybe those who are in here week after week, but they're just steeped in sin and they don't want to do anything for the Lord. We ought to bring them alongside of us. We ought to be one single unit. Just as the Spartans fought, they were one single unit, shields locked together, and they pressed forward towards the enemy and advanced. Let's pray.